think we'll get started. I want to thank everyone for coming uh, today. This is uh, the AO Trauma North America Journal Club uh, series. And today we're going to be uh, reviewing some ABOS WLA articles. Uh, I am very excited that uh, we've got a fantastic group of moderators today. Uh, so I, I hope that uh, we can have a great discussion about the articles that we're going to be presenting. Uh, I'll introduce the, the moderators really quickly, and then they'll introduce themselves as well as the, the guest authors that we have uh, with us today. Uh, so we have uh, Lucas Marchand. Uh, he'll be uh, giving us a presentation today uh, as well uh, from the University of Utah. We have uh, John Morlato. He's from uh, University of Mississippi Medical Center. And then uh, Kyle uh, Schweizer, who's from University of Missouri. We'll be reviewing uh, four articles today. We're going to uh, have a small break after the first one just to ask some questions uh, of our guest lecturer so um, she can get off to a, another meeting that she has to run to. So uh, please be prepared for that. And then our other three authors will run thereafter. I'll have them introduced uh, by their uh, moderator for each of their sessions. And uh, let's get started with uh, no further ado. John Morlato. I'm from the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and we're going to be talking about uh, a study from 29, published in 2019 um, called a randomized controlled trial comparing the recombinant BH, BMP to absorbable collagen sponge versus autograph for the treatment of tibial fractures with critical size defects. Um, thank you for joining us, uh, Dr. Canada. Thank you. It's very, it's an honor and pleasure to be here. Right on. And uh, I guess we'll just jump right into it. Um, can you briefly summarize this trial design and uh, briefly describe the results for us? Well, this study took place between 2011 and 2017. However, the work for this study started several years in advance of that. Uh, you know, for a long time, open to, we know open to be a fractures are a complex problem. And many times there's bone loss, soft tissue issues, and just a hard problem for orthopedic trauma surgeons. Um, and then we know in uh, the late, two, late 2000s, RHBMP2 uh, uh, was approved for use in spine surgery. However, for many uh, people, because of the osteoinductive nature of RHBMP2, uh, it was thought to be the best thing since sliced bread. And it was used off-label throughout uh, the late 2009s and two, 2009 to 2015, used off-label in uh, many trauma situations. Uh, and what we wanted to know, we really wanted to know, is it equal or better than our gold standard of iliac crest bone graft in the treatment of open tibia fractures uh, with bone loss. That's great. And um, what, uh, if you could just summarize the finding for this study? Well, first of all, uh, our, our hypothesis was it equivalent with radiographic union within 52 weeks without the need for additional or more surgery to uh, iliac crest bone graft, which was thought to be the gold standard. Um, you know, open to it, the metric consortium represents a tremendous uh, advance in orthopedic trauma. Uh, more than 50 trauma centers across the United States are involved, and there's been multiple articles published. 
This article represents the first clinical trial results published from the metric consortium. Very proud of the efforts of all the contributors and thankful for metrics involvement. However, it was a lesson in research for all involved. We screened uh, 1,123 patients. In the end, only 55 were eligible. And during this time, there was bad uh, or negative press regarding RHBMP2, uh, resulting in difficulty in patients consenting for randomization and also clinicians feeling comfortable uh, with some of the negative press which had come out regarding uh, BMP2. In the end, we had 16 patients who received RHBMP2 on the absorbable collagen sponge with allograft and 14 patients who had iliac crest bone graft. Uh, and what we uh, looked at was the time to healing uh, and uh, also complication rates. Uh, so we wanted to look at our non-union rate and uh, infection rate. And interestingly, there were three infections in the RHBMP2 group and none in the iliac crest bone graft. Uh, and we wanted to look at uh, secondary healing, functional outcomes with the SMFA, and also the overall costs, uh, comparing uh, the Medicare cost uh, to charge ratios. So in the end, uh, we had 23 of those patients out of the 34 who had union uh, data. Uh, seven of the 12 or 58% of the BMP group were healed uh, using the rust criteria compared with 81% of the iliac crest bone graft, uh, resulting in a difference in treatment between the two groups. And there was lower rates of clinical healing. What did we define clinical healing as? That was full weight bearing with a VAS score of four or lower at the fracture site. And they had lower rates of uh, clinical healing, which the rates were just pretty poor overall, 27% with BMP2 and 54% with iliac crest bone grafting. And then when we looked at our functional outcomes, the bother and dysfunction index of the uh, SMFA, uh, there were higher scores in the BMP group. And again, the complication rate. The overall cost was also higher for the BMP2 group at $14,155 versus $9,086 for iliac crest bone graft. Ultimately, with this study, the iliac crest bone graft kind of came out on top. Um, how did this or did this at all change your practice? You know, uh, what you have to think about is the number of years, you know, I've been in practice over 20 years and things have changed. As you know, even since you've been in practice, things have changed. Um, you know, I came uh, out at a time when iliac, you know, in the early 2000s is when I started practice and iliac crest bone graft was used routinely. Um, but then, you know, what are the negatives? How long does it take to harvest? Uh, it's limited volume, uh, you know, and also, also dependent upon the age of the patient um, and, you know, the risk of fractures um, and uh, all of that pain. Yeah, pain, fracture risk. And I, I will 
say I uh, also did spine surgery for the first 10 years in practice. And I remember just, I did ACDF on a college basketball player and he didn't complain about his neck. He only complained about his iliac crest harvest site. Sure. You know, other things have come out um, and allograft products, other products have come out. Um, I do believe, you know, the value of iliac crest bone graft or really let's talk about autograph, the value of autograph, because there's other sites. Gertie's tubercle represents a great site for harvesting. And I do that, right? I mean, it's great. You can get a large volume, I believe bigger than Iliad Crest. Uh, and there are studies that support, you know, a comparable or more volume. Distal femurs or other sites or upper extremity surgeons can also use um, you know, uh, the upper extremity sites, including the distal radius um, for sites um, or lacrinon fossa. You know, there's a lot of, lot of different sites. The biggest thing is when you need autographed or when you believe that's the best thing, um, I still use autographed. And so let's, in a hypoth hypothetical situation in 2022 with a three centimeter uh, bone defect in a tibia. What uh, what's your go to then for a, a graft? Uh, you know, it's going to be using the mascalay technique. You know, uh, for three centimeters or greater. You know, if it's under three, it's really you know, I, I, oh, it's great. Uh, we all know about the benefits of the mascalay technique uh, and uh, the harvesting uh, of whether you use. Mm -hmm. Uh, autographed or whether you use allograft, um, you know, for me, it's going to depend on the patient, the defect, there are other injuries, uh, but I will use the mascalay technique uh, with uh, uh, autograft uh, augmented if I need more than I can harvest. So that's what I do. It depends, you know, because if you have a five centimeter defect, you might not get enough to fill with autograft alone. What about you? Tell me what you use. I'm sort of the same. Um, I'm uh, I, I like autograft and and I'll bulk it with with allograft if I need to. Um, I, I do dabble in some of the uh, proprietary sort of bone graft substitutes, but largely I, I'm I like the iliac crest. So. I you know I like it. It depends. Uh, yeah, you can be very aggressive with the iliac crest. Uh, it depends. The younger the patient, the more um, you know, it actually is much more attractive. Um, older patients, uh, postmenopausal women that need bone grafting, it's, you know, uh, that iliac crest, you know, again, it's the patient, the defect, the size, and their other injuries. But definitely allograft mixed with, uh, autograft mixed with allograft. Uh, and as you mentioned, some of the proprietary, um, you know, products available. Uh, with Mascalay, I think is the way to go. And my last question, um, is there an indication for you for BMP2 uh, at this stage for non-union uh, work or fractured, um, or bony defect? You know, for a bone defect, uh, you know, I haven't, uh, I believe I, if something has failed, if the uh, tried and true, if the mascalay technique uh, has failed, um, you know, I will go to uh, BMP2 in difficult situations where, um, but it's a more a salvage versus 
uh, choosing it as a first line. Yeah, I think uh, I agree with that. And I think a lot of surgeons do. It's it's kind of the kitchen sink, you know, once you've sort of run out of uh, options, um, then you you sort of looking to for for any help you can get. I agree, and it's desperation, uh, but you know it does have osteoinductive properties. Uh, that part can't be disputed, mm -hmm. so we do have to acknowledge that. And when we're trying to take care of patients in those desperate situations, it is useful. Well, um, we're coming to the end here. We'll wrap it up, but thank you very much uh, for your time. We really appreciate it. This is a, a great study. It's very interesting and. And I think it does guide uh, what we do in, in 2022. So thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me to discuss it. And thank you to Metric and all the researchers who, com who uh, committed their blood, sweat, and tears to completion of this study. Great. Thank you. So I guess, Jason, um, since uh, we did the interview, I'll, I'll just maybe ask a few questions. And to all the uh, participants, if you guys have any questions, just click the Q&A button and we can answer them as we go or save them from uh, appropriate uh, time. So, um, Dr. Canada, this is an, an interesting study and it sounds like um, there was some issues with this, like trying to get the right sample size, dealing with the FDA um, and that sort of thing and sort of plagued the Jones paper as well with small, small numbers as well. Um, having to get the investigational investigational device exemption and all those sorts of things for the BMP. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, you combine the two studies um, in the analysis. How would you do this study again? Or do you think that it's even necessary? Do we have enough information at this at this stage? So a, a couple of things. First of all, I wouldn't do a study on BMP uh, off-label at this point in time because there's enough other alternatives. Um, but uh, any off-label use of a product uh, is uh, fraught with, you know, a lot of oversight by the FDA uh, and very strict protocols. Uh, and also, uh, using something off-label, you know, we always have to say that we're at the academy meeting right now, you know, uh, we're discussing off-label products and you have to disclose to your patients if you're doing that. It makes people less hesitant to participate in a randomized study. The study, excuse me, the study design can't be successful uh, in uh, something that is controversial. That's the biggest thing I would learn. We had to combine the data uh, so that we would have something to actually uh, compare to and to give you results. Uh, and a lot of times a big lesson learned. You have a hypothesis. It, we didn't prove our point, but we learned a lot from this study. And we learned that uh, the good old standard was uh, better. Uh, so you have to be prepared anytime you're jumping into a research uh, project that you might not get the results you want. And then therefore regroup with the data you have and with data that is accessible to come up with something for clinical application. That's the lesson. And so you you talked a little bit about how this sort of may or may not have changed your practice. Do you think that it changed practice amongst other surgeons or, or what was the discussion at the time the paper came out or at the time you were doing it? Um, 
So at the time we were started this study, there was a lot of enthusiasm for it. It was actually, like I said, the first big metric study that was going forward. Uh, we had the IDE in place, we had the IRB in place, and then the negative press with BMP uh, in the spine literature and also the research that was uh, used to get the BMP indications for spine uh, was flawed. Uh, and therefore, it made people less trustworthy of this. It was like everyone it jumped on the bandwagon and then they jumped off. Uh, so you have to proceed with caution and perhaps we should have stopped the study uh, earlier and uh, there was a lot of discussion on that, but there was a lot of money vested in it as being the first clinical trial in metric. Right on. Well. I, I don't see any questions from the, the audience. So Dr. Canada, I, I have a question oh, if it's okay. all right if I ask one. Of course. Yes, you can. You obviously congratulations on doing this. These are obviously incredibly hard trials to run. And it sounds like to me that most of the lessons you learned revolve around doing research and working with the FDA and doing some off-label stuff and the difficulties and challenges surrounding that. But clearly there's a there's a pearl in there somewhere that the ABOS thought was very important from a clinical practice uh, standpoint. What do you think that clinical pearl is that <clears throat> those who may listen to the, are listening to this now and maybe listening to it in the future need to take away as something kind of the most important or salient point that they can take home and it can to some degree impact clinical care? So when being tested by ABOS, I want to know in your thought process that you refer to uh, evidence-based medicine. This provides some evidence-based medicine for those people that do use RHBMP2 in certain situations. Uh, it provides, in, you know, it provides uh, some background uh, that you can tell your patients and that you can tell your examiners and uh, why and you chose this to use this over other products, uh, this gives you some information that can be used. Well, I think if there isn't any other questions from the panel, uh, like a, I wanna be mindful of your time. I know you've got to run, but uh, thank you very much again for, for doing this with us. And, and um, yeah, I, I think it, it definitely uh, gives us a bit more information about BNP2 for uh, the listeners. Yes, thank you very much. And it, this is an awesome event you're doing. Uh, have a great evening. Thank you. All right, so we'll go uh, to our, uh, our next video. Uh, Chris, if we can play that. All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, I'm here again with Gerard Slobosian. Um, um, uh, as a brief introduction, he's a friend and mentor of mine, works at the University of Maryland, Baltimore, where he um, is the director of clinical investigation at Shock Trauma. And uh, we've previously actually done a journal club together. So this is the second one of his articles, which has been selected by the AO North America Trauma Journal Club. So congrats on that. Kudos. That means you're doing some cool research, I think. Thank you. Thanks. So uh, thanks for joining us again and, and giving us some of your time. The uh, paper we're going to review today is titled Effect of Extended Prophylactic Antibiotic Duration in the Treatment of Open Fracture Wounds 
differs by level of contamination. So the theme of the AO Trauma North America March Journal Club is um, to be reviewing papers that were selected by the American Board of Orthopedic Surgeons or the ABOS for their web-based longitudinal um, assessment program. So this is a way now that people are basically keeping their board certification. And this is one of the papers that the ABOS selected. I'll introduce the paper quickly and we'll get into some questions. So this paper is a secondary analysis of data from the FLOW trial, which as we all know at the time was the largest randomized control trial in orthopedic trauma surgery, looking at irrigant strategies in open fractures. And in this secondary analysis, 2,400 patients from the FLOW trial were analyzed um, with the objective being to determine the association between prophylactic antibiotic duration after definitive wound closure of an open fracture and deep surgical site infection. So what you guys did as authors, you took 2,400 patients from the FLOW trial, you evaluated patients that had antibiotics following definitive closure up to 72 hours and compared those against a group of um, patients that had antibiotic duration following definitive wound closure, definitive treatment for greater than 72 hours. And I would say that the uh, findings of the study are quite interesting. Um, and without getting into too much of the nitty gritty, uh, the, the primary finding here is that extended antibiotic duration resulted in lower odds of surgical site infection amongst patients with severely contaminated wounds. But those patients with mildly contaminated wounds, which was something determined by the surgeon, the degree of contamination, were maybe at increased odds of infection. So um, we'll just start by asking sort of um, what was the genesis of this paper? And secondly, why do you think it was selected by the ABOS as part of their uh, web-based longitudinal assessment program? Sure. Uh, I'll start with that, that second question first. Um, you know, certainly it's, it's an honor to be talking about our research in this journal club, uh, and it's certainly an honor to have uh, your work picked for the ABOS and the longitudinal assessment. I suspect the reason they uh, picked it is twofold. One is this is a legitimate clinical question that most of us need to ask, which is, you know, how long should we uh, continue prophylactic antibiotics? This is something you'll decide for every single one of your open fracture patients. So I think it's very clinically relevant. And then I think uh, the ABOS uh, reviewers also recognize that it comes from one of the best data sources we have right now. And, you know, this analysis is a secondary analysis of the, the flow trial, which was uh, led by uh, McMaster and Mo Bandari and, and all the collaborators across the, the country and across, you know, the world that participate in this. So I think this is, you know, the best available data that we have, and it's highly generalizable because it comes from so many sites across the world. And what, what was the motive, you know, to, to look into this topic? I mean, right. is, is it, was your motive similar to why you think it was picked and that it's sort of a broadly applicable topic with sort of, that has the opportunity to have a high impact on care? Yeah, I think, you know, as I mentioned, this is clinically relevant and I struggle with it in my own practice, right? Because uh, antibiotic stewardship is a hot topic. It's an important topic. But sometimes I feel like just following protocols um, takes away the thinking and the actual clinical acumen of the patient in front of you, right? So we know that protocols help with standardization. Standardization sort of helps us get around random variation that you know probably shouldn't be there. 
But there are, I think there's important times where you may say 24 hours of antibiotics or even no post-operative antibiotics doesn't make sense for this patient. There was dirt, there was, you know, grass. I was picking it out for an hour while I was doing this debridement. And maybe I should treat this patient a little bit differently. Yeah, and I think that was that was one of the very unique aspects of this paper. Work like this has been previously done, and there's even meta-analyses done in this arena. But what was unique about what you guys did with this paper was stratified the patient cohorts by the severity of contamination. And that ultimately ends up being, you know, a primary driver of, of your outcome and the conclusion of this paper, which I think is important for the readers to understand when they're reviewing this, as I imagine it will be something that the ABOS is focused on, is the difference in the uh, severity of contamination. So explain to me a little bit uh, <clears throat> what you think or the reason for the disparate conclusions between the mild contaminant group and the effect that prolonged antibiotics had on their outcome. It essentially increased the odds of surgical site infection versus in the severely contaminated open fractures, the extended antibiotics, so greater than 72 hours, was protective against surgical site infection. Why do you think the, the sort of disparate um, relationship occurred? Yeah, so um, I think there's a, a few things that are worth talking about in this, in this um, question. The first thing you mentioned is that, you know, some of this work has already kind of been done, um, but it hadn't been done based on wound contamination. So other people have looked at this question based on Gastillo-Anderson um, class. And of course, wound contamination and Gastillo-Anderson class will cluster together. You know, it's pretty hard to get a really severely contaminated wound and have it be a type one open fracture. It just, they, that doesn't really happen. So the two definitely go together. But one of the things I've learned, um, and a lot of us have learned over time as we do these multi-center studies is that a 3A and a 3B may not be the same from institution to institution. And same with a type two and a 3A uh, may not be the same. And there, there really is a lot of variation in what people think about those injuries and how they classify them. And some 3A tibias, for example, may actually be kind of benign. I'll use that term a little loosely, right? But the, the wound management, the soft tissue injury really isn't that bad. And so looking at wound contamination, I think really gets at uh, probably what we were trying to describe originally with the Gastillo-Anderson as well, right? So I think that that's a much more uh, important marker. And it's also from a biologic infection perspective, it's I think a lot more uh, pertinent, right? If you have a lot of soil and grounding contamination, that's definitely a lot more at risk uh, for infection than something that's just a big wound, but it was completely clean. Uh, so that's the first uh, reason why we did it in this way. And I think a big advancement into uh, our analysis. In terms of why we saw the results we saw, which, which means a big effect, a big protective effect for extended duration in severely contaminated wounds. Again, I think that fits a biologically um, plausible and important um, mechanism. In terms of the mild wounds having an increased risk of infection with prolonged antibiotics, I think it, it's important to look at the way the trend goes, right? So the highest risk, like you said, is in that mild group, but it, even those results weren't statistically significant, right? And so that point estimate, I think, was 0.139 for the odds or something like that. And then you get to the moderate and it's like, 1.05 or somewhere around there. And then you get to the severe, it's 0.2, right? 
right? So you're seeing everything move in the same direction. Uh, so you're not having a bunch of spurious results in that regard. You see that the first two estimates cross one or sorry, cross zero and are no, cross one, <laughs> cross one and are not significant. Um, and then you see a very strong signal where it makes the most biologic uh, rationale. In the paper, we throw out a few other uh, potential explanations why you could see this. And, and one being that the less severe open fractures, there's data out there that shows that the time to first antibiotics for less severe open fractures tends to be longer, right? So it's not that impressive. So people don't get them the timely open fracture antibiotic prophylaxis that they should have in the emergency department. Um, and that in itself, of course, could cause an increased risk for infection. But you know, those are all just, just theories. But I, I do think that the overall trend of the point estimates getting stronger and stronger and stronger and supportive of extended duration as the wounds get more severe, I think, is, is the important take home from my perspective. Yeah, I think so. And it's nice to see that consistent trend, exactly how you described there. And I would congratulate you guys. I don't want to get too much into the weeds of the statistics, but congratulate you guys on doing a very sophisticated statistical analysis and stratifying and using propensity score matching to do all these things to give us the most reliable result to trust. Because it's interesting when you look at just that, the unadjusted analysis of all this data, nothing is significant. But you guys do a nice job of detailing why you looked at these different strata and how the strata can confound and the reasons that you used these strata and propensity score matching to give us something that that we can believe. Um, how has this paper changed your own practice? Is this something now where if a wound is severely contaminated, you're doing more than 72 hours? And if so, how long is enough? And how long is too long? And for those non-severely contaminated wounds, are you being sure that you only give those patients, say, 24 hours of post-operative antibiotics? Yeah, so you know, I do have to to just publicly acknowledge that you know most of these decisions initially are being made either by the trauma team because they're multi-trauma patients or our infectious disease partners. So on the day-to-day -day, um, decision making, I I really am not that involved. And I also sort of the literature would suggest that it probably doesn't matter, right? So if they're strong proponents of 24 hours and antibiotic stewardship and they cut them off there, it probably doesn't matter. However, for when this, this paper and this analysis has changed my practice, when I do have severely contaminated wounds, I make sure I communicate both the findings of this study, both the findings intraoperatively, and, and that, you know, I want longer antibiotics. And, you know, I, I certainly say at a minimum 72 hours there, these cases aren't that common, to be honest, you know, but um, you know, I, I prefer 72 hours to even up to five days because these, these severely contaminated cases aren't walking out of the, the hospital the next day, right? So it's not like I'm delaying their discharge or, or things like that. These patients tend to be in the hospital a lot longer. Uh, they're at a high risk because their metabolic uh, demands and things like that from their multi-trauma as well. And um, these are patients that I just feel that I need to advocate more for a more thoughtful approach to their antibiotics, not just a protocolized approach. Yeah, for me, I think this is a case where it, this is something that would lead me to advocacy for that very reason in, in the more severe cases, I think. I was surprised by the amount of patients who received greater than 72 hours of antibiotics. You know, it was like 42% of the, of the patients in this study because 
I think it's just because of the institutions I have been at are heavy protocolized and people are very into antibiotic stewardship and we very rarely do anything more than 24 hours. So I found yeah, that. Some, some of that is purely regional differences, right? This was an international trial um, in many, many countries and th there are regional differences there. There are other countries that do routinely use uh, prolonged antibiotics and stuff. And so that allowed us to answer this question and have enough variation um, to be to be able to explore this. And one kind of tough question for you. How do you think this was sort of before the time that local application of antibiotics was really a fad? Um, would that be an accurate statement? Absolutely. And, and how do you think that that maybe affects the results of these? So now people are getting these severe open tibia fractures and they're dumping a couple grams of local antibiotic powder into the wound. Yeah, I, I think that that's a, it's a little bit hard to, to answer with direct data, but I think we can put together a few pieces of indirect data that can help us. So the first, uh, you know, issue of course is are prolonged antibiotics leading to, um, to bacterial resistance and causing problems there, right? Cause that's the whole antibiotic stewardship issue. And we know that prolonged antibiotics certainly can, right? But we have a real problem on our hands with these severe uh, cases, right? So the infection rate in this in this series in the flow trial was 23% for severe, um, severely contaminated open fractures, right? So that's way above the risk of antibiotic uh, resistance. Second, um, you know, this is still a relatively short dose, um, short course of, of antibiotics. And I don't think that that is going to be just the right amount to create resistance. It may, it may be, but I really don't think so. And I think we've got a bigger problem that we need to tackle with the, the high infection rate. Now, when you add um, the local antibiotics, you have to think is giving three days or five days of systemic antibiotics plus a really high dose of local antibiotics, is that gonna cause some sort of systemic problems? And I think it's important to recognize that there's been a bunch of data uh, looking at this. And frankly, if you dump a gram or two grams of vancomycin powder into the wound, almost nothing gets absorbed systemically. And so that tells you that it's still very, very safe. So as long as you're safely doing your IV doses, uh, it's unlikely that the uh, local dose is going to take you to some uh, high um, systemic problem. So I think I think I put all that together and I, I'm okay with the practice of both, even though we don't necessarily have data um, looking at both at the same time. Awesome. Thank you. That's great wisdom. Last question for you. Do you think there's any role in severe closed fractures, like highly comminuted or segmental closed fractures where the soft tissue envelope is not compromised um, to the point where the fracture becomes open, but we know there is severe soft tissue and, and internal degloving, do you think there would be any role for extended antibiotics in those patients based on this data? Well, certainly this data doesn't help us answer that question at all. Um, but so now we're just talking about my opinion. Um, yeah. I, I do think that probably the local antibiotic uh, administration is probably the way to go here. You know, the, as I mentioned, we need to be thoughtful about when we're doing something outside of the standards or the protocols or whatever, right? And the reason we were prolonging antibiotics for severe open fractures is there was tons of ground dirt and debris in the wound, right? So there's a very clear immediate threat to the uh, 
you know, to that wound getting infected. There was bacteria in that wound. A closed fracture is not that, uh, that situation, right? Instead, the closed uh, injury, even if it's severe, is at risk of the, the, the soft tissues not being able to fight any infection that it is introduced during the surgery, more iatrogenic. So I think that that's less of an issue and a very high local concentration with um, antibiotic powder should be able to, to handle that. Awesome. That, that puts us right at, uh, at our time limit. So I wanted to thank you again. This is obviously the second time you and I have got to do this, which is always fun for me, but I really appreciate your time and stepping away from your busy schedule to go over another one of your articles. And also again, congratulate you a second time. This is cool that your work is to me, what it means when the ABOS selects your paper is that you're doing the research that has the opportunity or should be changing, or at least at the, at the very least guiding practice. So I think, I think that's an incredible compliment. And again, congratulations. We can't thank you enough for joining us again for another version of the Journal Club. Well, thanks again, Lucas. And I, I, I'm humbled by those kind thoughts and words. I, I really want to spend most of the time just thanking all the flow investigators, right? Because the the coordination from McMaster, Moe, and Sheila Sprague, um, and, and all the investigators across the, the, the world, right, that contributed to this, we wouldn't be able to answer some of these questions secondarily if it wasn't for that vision and all that effort. So I think that's wonderful. And thanks again for having me. Yeah, cool to see that this work continue outside of just the primary trial to continue to, to help us answer important questions. So exactly. thanks again. All right. That was great. Uh, just in the sake of time, we're just going to go on to the next video. But I think there's a couple of questions that have come in, so we'll we'll uh, we'll loop back to those once we've uh, done these next two videos. We're going to shift gears a little bit into hip fractures. Um, so let's roll to the next one, please. All right. Um, I'm Kyle Schwazer from the University of Missouri, and we are joined by Mai Wynn up in Minnesota. We're going to be talking about her paper, The Impact of the Fascia Iliaca Block on Pain, Opioid Consumption, and Ambulation for Patients with Hip Fractures, which is a prospective randomized study. So thanks for being here with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So what prompted you to conduct this study? Yes, Kyle, it was a, it was a really fun study to do because um, that was my first year out practice, our fellowship. And I know that I wanted to do research, something relevant for my trauma patient. And I picked out hip fracture as one of the topic because so many of patients I, I treat have this problem. And that's also a shared passion between me and other trauma partner in the group. So I know that I would have support. Um, and so we all fresh our fellowship, five of us uh, started out at Texas Tech uh, we wanted to follow everything like by the book. We want to follow the AOS guideline. And we knew at the time that the hospital were not really giving priority for hip fracture patients. So we really want to make changes. And we we're forming um, group task group to meet with the uh, member representative from internal medicine and anesthesia to trying to improve care. Uh, at the same time, I don't know if you remember back in 2017, um, when I went, I remember vividly going to national conference and he hearing all this this uh, priority and, and talks on 
the opiate pandemic and and the role of orthopedic surgeon play. And I I got home. I felt really excited about this topic, and I felt like I needed to do something to contribute as a surgeon uh, into this um, national effort by our national organizations. And the OTA and OS did a really good job trying to put up a public announcement and and showing us how important this topic is for our trauma patients. Um, so I went home, uh, talked to my group about how we could do that and go back to my group when I was meeting with anesthesia and medicine. Uh, for orthopedic surgery, we, we all tell them that we can get patients to the operating room within 24 hours from their injury. And we wanted to hear what they want to do from their standpoint to optimize the care delivery system. And I remember my anesthesia partner, um, he was telling me about this block, fascia ulvil block, and wanting to do this for all hip fracture patients. And I told him, Jasper, I've never heard of this block before. I look up in the literature. Uh, he told me that there's great evidence to support um, the use of the block. But the only papers I could find was in uh, anesthesia literature and uh, emergency room literature, which I knew that if we want to roll this out uh, for hip fracture patients, you know, we need to have some data within the orthopedic literature. Um, so I learned more about the block. I, I follow him and actually time him to see how, how fast they could perform the block effectively. And it took them five minutes to do that from the time that they start collecting medication until the block is completed. Um, I follow my patient who has a block who have very good results. And I knew that we have enough information to be able to do a prospective randomized control try on this topic. Um, so that's how the, the study uh, idea uh, started. Um, and what was the, what do you think the main, the main takeaway from the paper? Like if you were going to, you know, go through and, and you wanted one thing to be kind of conveyed to everyone um what do you think that would be yeah and and i think this is the the importance of of teamwork and orthopedics not only about uh, our paper um, but also the national efforts of other team as well on this topic um so the overall message from for for this study and other study would be you know the advantage of fascia ego block for hip fracture patient. And for us, the, the single takeaway based on our um, intention to treat analysis would be that single perioperative uh, block uh, for hip fracture patients can decrease opiate consumptions and increase the likelihood that the patient can um, able to be discharged to home instead of to a skilled um, nursing facility. That would be the takeaway. And do you think that the reason um, I and mean, what do you think the reason is for the more likely to be discharged home? Is that the requiring less opiates, so they're a little less, usually a little more alert? Or what do you think the reasoning behind that is? That's a great question. And um, I, I mentioned before that, you know, this is one of our efforts looking into quality improvement for hip fracture patients. And I think something that's unique in, in our paper is that we're trying to bridge that connection between pain and then function. And I think because it's all tied together and if the patient had better pain control, um, that would translate to some improvement in, in immobilization, in, in able to mobilize faster. And if they can mobilize faster, they can be more mobile, they need 
less assistance and able to discharge you to home instead of to a skilled nursing facility when they require a lot of assistance still. And so I think it's tied together. It's probably impossible to tease out exactly the causative um, functions uh, relationship between this variable, but I think that's the combinations of better pain control require less narcotic, probably uh, less side effect from uh, narcotic medications and ambulating better. Um, <clears throat> what do you think was the kind of the main limitation to this study? So you can tell from my study, uh, I, I think the most um, downside of the study was that the um, crossover was really high, close to 30%. And uh, I should mention earlier there that um, I, I want to use this study as an example to encourage people to do research with little funding so that you don't feel discouraged, you don't feel like you need to be at a powerhouse to do research, um, but also understand the, the drawback from that. Um, so this study was a randomized control trial. We, we registered the study um, in, the, in the registry of randomized control trial for orthopedics. Um, and that was a study that I'm pleased and really proud of our group to, to say this, but we did this with zero funding whatsoever. There was no funding for the study. It's really um, done based on uh, the hard work of the, of the team member. Um, and because of that, we didn't have a research coordinator to be able to to closely follow the patient to ensure uh, that they, they follow the, the treatment branch. Um, rather, we once we assign the patients, we just let the rest of the care after the block to just play out the way that the standard um, post-op protocol for hip fracture pa patient um, uh, would be carried out. And because of that, we had, you know, 18 patients uh, who um, should, should not have a block, had a block, and 12 patients who supposed to not have a block, you know, cross over to the other try. So because of that, you can see that we have to analyze our results based on intention to treat, based on as treat analysis and per protocol because of the high crossover rate. So um, that's something that I, I definitely highlight as our the limitation of the study. But uh, orthopedic surgery is tough, and there's a lot of smart people now feel. Um, I whenever I apply for a grant, I had to compete with you guys who are super smart out there. And as a result, I have not been able to secure really any grant from you know the OTA, um, ORF, and and so it is tough. But you know it is doable for this study. Uh, Basically, I posted my personal in contact information out there. Um, my residents who um, involved with the study uh, have with recruiting patients as well. But I basically tell the, the rest of the hip fracture team in the ER and what anesthesiology is that if you have a patient who have a hip fracture, I don't care what time of the day it is, uh, if it's a weekend, uh, call me and I will make sure the patient is enrolled. Um, so it's really a poor man way of, of trying to um, perform a randomized control try um, based on the limited resource we have. But and that's a result that we have pretty poor um, crossover rate. Well, I mean, it looks like that hard work paid off for you, though, um, at least for this study. And I, I think that's a great message for everyone who's watching this or just anybody in general, like, you know, research is hard. There's a lot of roadblocks for sure. Um, resources, funding, 
getting anything published, I mean, it is, there is so many roadblocks in research and sometimes it's just all about persistence and hard work and, and that you can definitely get things done. So don't, don't feel like you have to be, you know, super well funded all the time. And if you have an idea that you're passionate about, like you should definitely pursue it. I think that's a yeah, great message. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, we really appreciate you being here. Um, it was a great study and uh, we appreciate your thoughts and comments on it. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's my honor to be here today. Fantastic. Um, and then we'll just, we'll roll the last one and then open up to questions, uh, both from uh, the participants and, uh, and from the moderators and, and uh, our guests. Good evening, I'm Jason Stralzo. I'm an orthopedic traumatologist and upper extremity surgeon from the University of Chicago. And it's uh, my great uh, pleasure to introduce one of our uh, first papers this evening uh, for our journal club from David Gallos and his group. And this is entitled Unnecessary Preoperative Cardiology Evaluation and Transthoracic Echocardiogram Delays Time to Surgery for Geriatric Hip Fractures. This was uh, published in Journal of Orthopedic Trauma in 2021. Dr. Gallos, uh, thanks for uh, joining us and maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello, I'm an assistant professor of orthopedic trauma at Temple University Hospital. Uh, Temple University Hospital is a level one trauma center in a large urban setting. Um, I joined there in uh, September of 2020. Prior to that, uh, I was working in a level one trauma center on Long Island but we saw a, a large number of geriatric hip fractures. So maybe start us off with just sort of describing the, the genesis of this project. So um, in, the, in our hospital in Long Island where um, I was practicing, we had a large volume of geriatric hip fractures and we had a, um, a geriatric hip fracture protocol that um, included a multidisciplinary team. And we found that oftentimes on part of the optimization and workup for the patient prior to going to the OR um, in our uh, safety net hospital, we were getting a lot of cardiology consults that seemingly were delaying some of the patients getting into the operating room. If the, op if the optimal time to get into the operating room is anywhere from 24 to 48 hours, oftentimes um, that was being stretched a bit. And when we looked at the actual um, criteria for what was recommended for necessitating uh, further workup by subspecialty medical uh, practices. Um, oftentimes we saw that our patients didn't necessarily meet that. So we were interested to see um, what that, uh, how, how that was factoring in our, in our institution, as we think that being a safety net hospital, that might be quite similar to other safety net hospitals in and around our country. And so um, this might be something that's similar elsewhere. And this data would hopefully you know, be help, be useful as a way to you know, streamline and get patients to, into and out of the OR a little bit quicker. And for those on the call that maybe don't or aren't familiar with the term safety net hospital, maybe just expand on that for us just uh, briefly. So the, um, the hospital itself is a, a county hospital. It's uh, funded uh, by, by the state and it's essentially um, takes all comers regardless of any sort of uh, insurance status and uh, tends to be a hospital, uh, a tertiary referral center as well. So, 
uh, three takeaways from the from the project that you sort of hope people uh, hope people uh, at least understand and, and maybe bring back to their institutions? Uh, number one, I think the most important thing is that seemingly uh, we're we're ordering uh, too many uh, consults specifically cardiology and too many transthoracic echocardiograms. Um, number two, I think that those and the data in our article kind of highlights this leads to uh, a delay in patients getting to the operating room. But as a third point, when patients did get those cardiology consults and echoes, it did not lead to a significant increase in number of interventions that would have prevented any sort of complication for the patient. So we're really not adding any added safety and we're just delaying uh, care. Yeah, I have to say, I thought that was one of the most interesting parts of the of the entire paper was the fact that you know you had all these interventions, but at the end of the day, or sorry, all these investigations, but at the end of the day, not a single patient in the population ended up receiving an intervention, which kind of would tell you that just like you explained, maybe maybe we're not actually adding benefit, we're just sort of making ourselves feel better, but not actually doing better patient care, okay. so to speak. I, I guess one of the questions that comes out of that is, uh, did you or do you or do you have an expectation that you might look at things like cost analysis uh, specific to this problem? Because I know you bring that up in the discussion a little bit about the the general cost of taking care of geriatric hip fractures and some of the costs related to uh, the investigation. I think that that's uh, a great next step, obviously, understanding um, how this affects patient care, but then also being able to monetize that to a certain degree uh, in the current um, structure we have where cost containment is um, of significant importance for hospital systems um, and a way to curb that, you know, if we are more diligent and um, careful with our consultation and use of um, various imaging studies, then, you know, this might be some a way for hospital systems to decrease the cost because the cost burden, for, uh, especially in areas where the geriatric population side can be significant. So, um, you know, that would be, I think, an important thing to look at. And I think that's a great next step. And we haven't gotten there yet. Um, but I think that's uh, kind of the natural, natural progression for this article in terms of where to look next. Oh, I think especially in, in, like you said, in light of the recent studies that have sort of been trying to to pin a specific time frame for the optimal care for these patients, um, even a even a study that's retrospective, I think, adds a lot to that. Given this is one component of maybe some of those delays that end up uh, end up potentially having a negative in, impact on patients. I think your discussion of, of of trying to do something maybe prospective, looking at the outcomes, whether there was a, a change in outcomes, would probably be be a, a great next step. It would it would seem so. Look forward to that. Um, I guess one question I have uh, from our institution, we co-manage a lot of our patients with uh, hip fractures. And so do you think, do where do you think the burden lies in terms of the consults? Now, obviously uh, for our patients over 65, like the patients in your study, um, they have an automatic hospitalist consultation for assessment. Mm -hmm. And then they often dictate that cardiology follow-up or that next step? I wonder, um, did, did you look at that? And was that at play in the current study? No, so, I mean, the, the, in our hip fracture, geriatric hip fracture protocol, we had a, uh, we granted we had a multidisciplinary team, but they were on a trauma service and they were automatically um, put into a, 
an elevated um, uh, care uh, setting, like an ICU type setting. Um, and uh, they were being managed mostly by the trauma team and they made many of the medical decisions unless there was something that really was um, above and beyond uh, you know, their capabilities. However, there are obviously a lot of other institutions that, and that, that do have a medical co-management model. I think that works very well. And I think oftentimes the default is to uh, listen to the medical colleagues um, about getting uh, consultations. However, um, I think it's important that you know, we're all educated in what would necessitate an appropriate consult. And I think when you have a good working uh, relationship with your colleagues, then it's safe to reach out to them when there's a question about whether or not this consult is really needed. And having an open door policy about having these discussions, I think, is, is, is worthwhile and something to strive for because ultimately, you know, there, there may be a very valid reason to get a consult. And, you know, we as orthopedists may not be as privy to those because to, to, to that knowledge because we don't necessarily have the same understanding as they would. Um, but at the end of the day, we can, you know, we have some data we can you know, certainly lean on and say, look, well, you know, we're not sure, so sure that this is appropriate. And, you know, if they, you know, feel the same way, then oftentimes I think, and oftentimes they would, would change their mind about getting it. And, you know, especially if you show them, show them the data. So I think it's not just, you know, we just acquiesce to um, another services kind of uh, uh, wants and needs, you know, with, I think it's a discussion and it should be evidence-based on both sides. I think one of the important, sometimes I think that um, our medical colleagues may not understand the the, um, the expectation or the uh, benefit that a patient would have by getting into the operating room in an expeditious fashion. And so, um, you know, our job, I think, is to raise the bell or raise the, uh, um, that point to them in a way that they would understand it and hope, you know, show them that the benefits of, of doing this, that, all this, that extra workup is not going to really, you know, lead to anything. And the risk would be increased significantly for a patient. You're studying, did you look at whether the T, you know, the TTEs were being asked for by the anesthesia team or whether this was strictly just by the cardiology team? I mean, the way that we had it was, it was from the cardiology team, but just from my own experience anecdotally, um, our anesthesia team was actually, they were pretty on much, very, very much on board with um, trying to minimize uh, these uh, cardiology input in the consults when it wasn't necessary. So they were, they were really not a roadblock to, uh, for us um, this, in this situation. So they were quite helpful. Well, that's great. Um, uh, that's all the questions I have for you. Uh, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time this evening to chat with us and I look forward to the discussion and, and questions that arise. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Great. Well, thank, uh, thank you all, both uh, moderators and then the, the guest authors. We really appreciate the time you took uh, to both uh, re re reply and give us some answers to some of the burning questions we had about your papers. Um, I think there's a few questions that have come in. I, I want to uh, make sure we get uh, time to answer those. So I think um, for Dr. Sablogin and uh, Lucas, I think there was a question uh, about whether 
and anyone on the panel truthfully can answer, but uh, are you doing primary closure of wounds or secondary closure? I assume this is in relation to sort of dirtier or type, you know, probably type two and type three A uh, wounds, but maybe uh, give us the, the, um, the current practice you have in terms of primary versus secondary closure. Sure, I'll, I'll go first if you don't mind. Um, I just want to clarify that the study was um, anchored off time from definitive closure. So I realize that's a slightly separate question, but just so we're all clear, uh, the time of the duration of antibiotics was based on time from definitive closure. Uh, and I'll just add my two cents in terms of primary versus secondary closure for dirty, contam heavily contaminated wounds. You know, we're not typically doing primary closure on, on the first night. You know, they're getting at least uh, one to two debridements in, in those situations. It'd be the same for me. And I think um, on another important point, until the wound is definitively closed, it has been my practice to continue antibiotics. So in those heavily contaminated wounds, that are getting multiple washouts, those patients are getting washouts um, in the interval spanning time between OR trips, which I bet most people are and is why I bet Dr. Slobosian and authors looked at antibiotics after definitive closure because there are probably a certain number of wounds that get antibiotics for a week in-house while they're having two or three trips to the OR getting multiple washouts. Anyone else do anything uh, differently on the panel? That's certainly, I follow the same, pretty much the same, <laughs> the same uh, protocol. So I do have a follow-up question to that, if that's all right. Um, what, uh, what's everyone using for antibiotic prophylaxis? So, and not, not uh, pre-surgery, pre but in the post-op. So let's say you're planning to do 72 hours of antibiotics. What are you using uh, and who's guiding that for you? I hope you're asking Lucas. Yep. That's, that's who I was going for. <laughs> No, Slobosian's got a great answer to this, I'm sure. But um, for me, it's just ANSEF, unless um, I've identified some other pathogen or I have some concern that the wound is contaminated with something um, uh, out of the ordinary, in which case there'd be a consultation to the infectious disease team looking for guidance. Yeah, I, I would just add, you know, at, at our institution, you know, we're, we're famous for... Um, saying something that's a bad idea, you know, and then going right back to doing it or, or saying we do this and then not doing that. Um, so I, you know, I will say that we were very concerned with uh, aminoglycosides in trauma patients, under resuscitated, et cetera. Uh, and I think you still need to be careful of that. And so ANSEF just in that situation, I think is reasonable, but for these heavily contaminated wounds that are getting multiple, multiple debridements and are, you know, kicking around your, your ICU for several days, Hopefully you've caught up on their resuscitation and now they are capable of receiving aminoglycosides or more broader spectrum antibiotics. And so we do kind of move back into that uh, approach for those heavily contaminated wounds. But as I indicated in the interview, a lot of times I'm not uh, involved in the, those actual decisions. And the other thing I would comment on is a lot of institutions have moved to other, you know, third generation cephalosporins and things like that, instead of uh, ANSEF plus GENT or whatever, that has not uh, been our practice per se at, at shock trauma, but uh, I think that that's still a very reasonable practice and, and there's a lot of regional variation in this area right now. Yeah, I, I totally agree with Gerard's last point there. I think this is highlight a very important point that trauma is very regional. And so 
I think we should look at our own data, institution data, because I think our patients are different. I mean, I, I this is, you know, the, the hospital I've been at in the last five years from fellowship. So um, you can see like, I mean, right now we're using mainly NSAF, but I remember when I was a resident at Iowa, um, we look at our infection rate for type three open fracture or type two and three. And we realize that a lot of our patients end up having surgical site infection and it will ground negative. So NSAF didn't cover them very well. So there they have a protocol, they have to have aminoglycoside and, and one single dose so that it does not affect your kidney and your hearing function and things like that. But you know that's regional. And then everyone probably remember the data from Vanderbilt. Uh, one study, they found very high rate of MRSA colonization among our patient, their patients. So because of that, they choose to cover MRSA for, for post-op patients that have high-risk wounds. So um, that's something I've been pushing for my institution to look at our own data because most of the time we use ANSEF, but I can certainly have seen cases that came back with gram negative uh, that ANSEF didn't cover. So I'm getting a little bit more aggressive with broader coverage, um, but that's something that I don't think that orthopedics had quite agree on, on those type two and type three. I'm glad, I'm glad to, to hear that there's uh, there's variation because our, our center, our ID people have really pushed us to go to third generation cephalosporins. So, you know, your three A's and, and above are really getting ceftriaxone uh, unless there's some allergies. Um, and we've kind of pushed ourselves off of the aminoglycosides, which, you know, for better or worse, I don't, I don't know. We don't have enough data yet to, to know whether it's working, but great. Um, I'd like to echo that too. That's what we started doing in Philly as well recently. I'm, I'm glad we're not alone. That's good to hear. Yeah, Seth Traxon has been the, uh, the new go-to. All right. I just have done that. And Carol Lynn's paper in JBGS uh, using PREPIT data has also shown that. So, you know, once the PREPIT trials, which are two uh, large trials with 10,000 patients are, are completed in the next year, uh, we'll have we'll be able to start looking at that question a little bit more and to Mike's comment as well about you know let's look at our institutional data let's look at the practice variation across the country. Mike, I want to ask a question about uh, your paper because uh, we have had uh, similar struggles in our institution. We've been trying to build sort of an institutional um, pr protocol around using uh, the fasciolytic block. One of the things that I, I'm fascinated by in the literature is some of the discussion about whether it affects mortality and uh, the ability to get patients up early and potentially get them off some of these drugs that you know decrease their respiratory drive, et cetera. Um, did you or do you have any plans to look at that as part of, uh, as part of your study? Jason, those are great questions. Um, so when I, uh, when I designed a study, I was I wanted to look at a few things around the block because there was no information in the orthopedic literature about this particular block before. So one, I want to make sure that it's safe. Um, so for example, a lot of anesthesiologists didn't want to do a block on patient who's uh, anticoagulated, right? Um, and so, and we, we still have to do those block on patients and still get them to the operating room, even though they're on Coumadin, they're on um, aspirin, Favix and all that. And so number one, we showed it's safe. We show that there's zero complications in, in any of those patients that related to the block. Uh, second, we wanna make sure that it's helpful in terms of pain and in function, and we show that it, it is. 
Um, and I also want to highlight that this is not the only paper to support that. I mean, David, I just texted him, he had a great paper on that. There's a body of literature now that support that is helpful in terms of pain and function. And the third one, I want to make sure that it's actually offset those side effects of narcotic. I mean, why we care, why we don't want narcotic for patients, we have to show that this uh, effect is actually uh, clinically meaningful. So in my paper, I also want to look at the other medical complications and the other side effects that is associated with narcotic, like delirium, um, constipation, um, and all of that didn't pans out the difference. So um, I think that the, the number one, the analysis that we picked for the power analysis was based on VAS score. So because of that, the number of powers was low. But I think that if we want to look at the other complication as well, medical complications, all those details, we would have to have much bigger number in order to amplify this effect. I mean, it's common sense was the thing that if patient use less narcotic, they would have less side effect. But in order to show that statistically significance that everyone is wanting to show, I think we have bigger numbers. Um, and, and one more thing I want to highlight that that was difficult for the study um, and very related to the, your questions is I think that patients who are most at risk probably would be the patient that would benefit the most. So those are the patients who could barely move even before surgery. So they, they go from barely moving to not moving at all after hip fracture, they are the patient who are, uh, have severe dementia. And unfortunately, because of the design of my study, I'm not able to capture them well. I mean, I mean, how do you enroll randomized control patients when they're not able to provide consent for themselves? So we intentionally excluded them. And because of that, there's zero, no patient with dementia in our study. And it's been um, one of the drawbacks in the study. I, I think for David's study, they also have to exclude dementia as well, the patients who are not able to provide consent. But I think that um, to answer your questions about the block, I think uh, a lot of you know, bigger data need to be pu pulled together um, I think the effect is there. Um, whether we're able to prove uh, statistically uh, is is another is another problem. But so far, it's been part of the guideline um, of AOS and all organizations that any any block that you can do for patient, any effect that you can decrease their pain and then narcotic use will be helpful for hip fracture. And I'd be interested in the from anybody on the panel. One other way that, that you can use a you know a fascia lata block, which uh, some of the attendees may not think about, or when you read this paper, it's another way is that um, when patients, like when we have patients who are going to be delayed for medical reasons or for whatever reason they can't have surgery within that 24 to 48 hours, or they're just you know too sick and they're likely you know not going to be able to go to the operating room, we'll actually do fascia lata blocks on the floor to let them mobilize and get in a chair and not lay in bed for four or five days while waiting on medical clearance. And so I don't know if anybody else has experience with that or. Um... That, that's really, that's really interesting. I mean, I think waiting four days for medical clearance is a crime in itself, but <laughs> um, I, I first learned the fascia lata block when I was a resident, no ultrasound, you know, and I'd say me personally doing it in the emergency department had probably a 75% success rate, uh, totally blind and, and really not knowing what I was doing. Uh, and so I think now that, that, that the literature has gotten better and people's experience have gotten better, I, I think that's a great idea. I think we should really try and promote uh, this sort of practice and 
you know, just as a, another random aside, as being on the OTA program committee, there are a lot of papers this year, submissions that have, you know, that are continuing to show efficacy. And a, a lot of them probably won't, you know, get accepted just due to the sheer volume of the number of, of things that we get. Uh, but that overall body of literature continues to move in the same direction. And I think we need to be cognizant of that. And Kai, to your point, so our protocol is actually the moment they hit the emergency room, we call it the code hit protocol. And now my paper to follow up on this, but they got they got to emergency room. Uh, we identified that there's a hip fracture. The operator sent a text to um, text page to orthopedic surgery uh, anesthesia, um, and that's it. So they, the anesthesia team goes see the patient to see if they can do block do the block right there, so the patient can actually have the benefit from it right away, regardless if the surgery is going to be that day or the day after. And I think because of that, our analysis get a little bit messy because in the, you know, like when was the block done and then when the surgery was and then when you can see the, the VAS pain afterward. But but I, I totally agree with your point. They get the benefit right away. So why do we wait around the time of the surgery? We just do the, the, the block right when the patient experienced pain. Uh, and go from there. And I think Carol, Carol Lynn um, had a couple of paper on that, looking at the different effects of, of the timing of the block and what type of fracture. Um, and again, I think getting to really needy details, it can get confusing um, to try to figure out exactly what fracture, what patients, but the overwhelming um, response from all these studies that the block does have with pain. One of the uh, uh, quick question, and one of the um, one of the barriers to implementation that we had was uh, the need for monitored and uh, monitored beds. So doing a block, there was some push from anesthesia to to ask for a monitored bed, and so this precluded a lot of our patients. So did you find that this was an issue? You're shaking your heads. Yeah, I I, I mean. That was our clinical suspicion that it wasn't a problem, but I'd be interested to hear what you said about that. Yeah, I mean, and that, I think that's why I want to highlight that even though my studies fall uh, for for several things that we mentioned, the size, the crossover, but we show that there was zero complication related to the block, and even a patient with INR above two. I mean, the the way I see it with my anesthesiologist is like you go there with an ultrasound, you see exactly where you're going with a needle. The patient can be clear for surgery. When you make an incision through that and put you know rod through their hip or you know hammy, why is it not safe when you put a tiny needle under ultrasound so you can see exactly where you're going and where to avoid the vessel? And I think that's even though you know we basically show that there's zero complication, there's no fancy analysis, but Hey, there's zero complications out of all this block. Um, so, I mean, it's, I think it would be hard pressed to, to um, withhold that from patient for, you know, like why do you need to monitor um, if they can be in the ER um, or general bed, like why, what additional science symptoms need to monitor after a block? That's great. Thank you. Awesome. I want to be uh, mindful of everyone's time because I know we're a little bit over, but um, I do like the idea of the, the code HIP because that just sort of puts everyone's mindset in the right uh, in the right place, especially, you know, when we're talking about the the TEs and, and uh, 
and getting the fasciated blocks and getting anesthesia on board and getting medicine on board. So I actually love that terminology. Um, anyone have any last minute burning questions before uh, I just pull up a couple last things? So I just want to uh, make sure that everyone knows about our upcoming journal club sessions. So we have uh, uh, one on infections, April 19th. There's a scapular uh, session on the 17th of May. And then on the 21st of June, there's our pediatric session. So please save those dates so you can make sure that uh, you're able to get there. Uh, there's this recording and all of the recordings from the journal, journal uh, club sessions are going to be available uh, probably in the next 24 hours, hopefully on, on YouTube. And you can find the links at AO uh, North America Trauma. Thanks everyone for coming. Really appreciate uh, you spending the evening with us. And we'll see you next time.